This content is issued by Zeus Capital Limited, which is authorised and regulated in the United Kingdom by the Financial Conduct Authority, the designated investment business, and is a member firm of the London Stock Exchange. Nothing in this podcast should be viewed as investment advice. Listeners should consult an investment professional before making any decisions regarding topics mentioned in this podcast. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and not of Zeus. Please note that participants in this podcast may have financial interests in the matters discussed. Hi, I'm Nick Searle, a member of the Zeus Equity Sales Team and host of A Different Perspective. Here we interview interesting characters from the world of business and finance and uncover a different perspective. Follow us wherever you get your podcasts or contact me at live at zeuscapital.co.uk. It's Wednesday, the 11th of January. With me today, I have William Green. William is an accomplished journalist, author and fellow podcaster. After Eton, Oxford and Columbia, William has written for many leading publications in the US and Europe, including The New Yorker, Time, Fortune, Forbes, Barron's, The Spectator and The Economist, to name a few. Over the last 25 years, William has interviewed many of the world's best investors. His book, Richer, Wiser, Happier, How the World's Greatest Investors Win in Markets and Life, is the culmination of these interviews. It has also become one of my favourite books. William, thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, Thank you. I'm delighted to be here with you, Nick. Can we start with what got you interested in the world of finance and its participants? Yeah, I think it was probably pure laziness. It was the the fantasy that I could get extremely wealthy without doing that much hard labor. So I think I think when I first discovered the stock market, I was in my early 20s, I would say. And so I was a young writer writing for different magazines. And um and I guess my my brother and I had owned an apartment together in London. Um this before property became sort of vastly expensive in London. We owned a, a an apartment um in Clapham and um, and we sold this apartment and my brother bought this very grand apartment in Kensington and and I had this sort of small windfall and I had to you know from from my half of the apartment and I had to figure out what the hell am I going to do with this money and so I start to read about the stock market and um, and I start to think this is really cool wait a second if I if I think well and just place a few intelligent bets and understand this game I could actually make money with money. And that that sort of very obvious realization was just incredibly exciting to me. And it it sort of it it cast me back into this state that I'd been when I was about 15 and was at was at boarding school in England and discovered horse racing. And I thought, this is fantastic. I, I placed a bet on the Grand National and sort of randomly won in my very first bet. Um, and and bought some really ugly jacket that I thought was incredibly cool with the winnings. And um, I think it was from Topshop or something like that, you know, and I thought yeah. it looked incredibly cool. And and then I started gambling on the horses because I thought, well, this is amazing. If I can just make, you know, 50 quid on this bet, 50 quid on this bet, 100 on this, you know, I'll be golden. And so on my 16th birthday, I I had a huge argument while sitting in the car with my parents in London because they refused to buy Timeform for me, this this racing subscription. So I think this went back a long way for me, this this fantasy that you could make money without having to work that hard. But then what 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 was unusual in my situation 
was that the more I became obsessed with this, the more I was able to indulge the fantasy because I could actually go and interview great investors. So because I was writing for magazines like Forbes and Fortune and Money and later for Time and Barron's and things like that, I could actually ring up someone famous and sort of say, is there any way I could write an article about you? And I, so I would go off to the Bahamas, say, and spend a day with Sir John Templeton, who was probably the greatest global stock picker of the 20th century. And so it was kind of this fantasy, like literally, I think the first fund that I bought pretty much was with this great old value investor, a guy called Marty Whitman. And so he was in New York and he was this old curmudgeon, I think then in his nineties or late eighties, probably eighties. Uh, and uh, so I, I would go interview him and I would, I would say, well, this is really interesting because this guy's incredibly smart, but do you really want to bet on this old codger who might keel over? And so the question is, can he find a good successor? And so I would write a story for Forbes called The Master and His Apprentice about yeah. him and his anointed successor. So it just gave me this incredible opportunity being a journalist to go interview the coolest, most interesting people. And then much to my surprise, I discovered that they were really odd and intriguing characters. And so you would go, you would go interview someone like Templeton and it was just kind of this odd duck, right? Like this, then this 86 year old guy who, who had, had sold his, his investment firm for hundreds of millions of dollars and, and had decided that he was going to increase the, the spiritual wealth of the world a hundredfold by studying things like whether prayer works and how to pray. And, you know, if you lay your hands on this person, does it work better or does it work better if you pray virtually or does it work better if they pray for themselves? And he would sponsor research at, at Harvard Medical School into this sort of thing because he was just incredibly curious and inquisitive about everything. And so I would just, um, I'm not commenting on his beliefs. I mean, look, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, he would be laughing at me now because I, I, you know, have, having been agnostic and atheistic at different points. Now, now I actually believe stuff and, and pray myself. So the, the joke's on me. But the um, but 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 I just looked at someone like that and I thought this is a really interesting character. And so for a writer, instead of it just being this idle interest from the start of just how do you make money without working hard, it became this really interesting area of study where you could write about these extraordinary, slightly strange, very brilliant, very pragmatic, eccentric people who have a different way of thinking. And that in a way is what my book is about, is, is about saying there's something really interesting going on here that they think better than the rest of us. And let me try to explain to you how they do it. Yeah, yeah, I think you do that very well in the book. Um, so how did the book come about? I had worked on a book, well, I mean, to go back, I'd, I'd, I'd been a journalist for many years, right? And I'd been an editor, Time magazine. So I went to live in Hong Kong and I, I edited the Asian edition of Time. We would cover things like the tsunami and, and uh, avian flu and SARS. And it was kind of a fascinating job, really fun, really engaging, really intense. Then I moved to London to edit the European, Middle East and African edition of Time. So I would go off and interview people like David Cameron and stuff like that mm -hmm. and Donald Tusk in Poland yeah. and, you know, Manmohan Singh in India when he was yeah, yeah. Prime Minister of India. So it was just a kind of riveting job, but all consuming. And really, I was just editing other people's work. I wasn't yeah. writing. And then I spent a brief period at another, um, at another company writing about four feature stories a year. And then I sort of was hating it. 
and I thought, um, I'm going to leave and I'm going to write somebody's memoir. So I became a ghostwriter and I wrote a few books for other people. Um, and then, and then I got, I, I got to be part of a project called The Great Minds of Investing, where a friend of mine, um, who's an extraordinary photographer, Michael O'Brien, had taken these incredible portraits of people like Warren Buffett, Charlie Munger, Howard Marks, or all of these great investors, mm -hmm. where he was very close up to them, looking in their eyes, and they, he didn't allow them to smile. They're these incredible portraits, and they needed someone to write um, profiles to go with yeah. them. So I wrote about 21 of those profiles and edited about 12 more. And so I started to interview these famous investors again. And so, so after, after this kind of digression for a few years where I'd been an editor at time, suddenly I'm going back to my origins of being obsessed with investors and I'm getting to go interview some of the greatest investors in the world. And I, I started to think there are these themes here that are coming through that I'm starting to see these patterns while writing the great minds of investing, just these brief 800, 850 word profiles that are like haikus. I'm starting to see these patterns that were really interesting. And then I was starting to think, what if I could explore these more deeply? So for example, I would interview someone like Howard Marks who oversees something like $160 billion at Oak Tree Capital Management, who's one of the great alternative investment gurus in the world. And, and Howard, would be talking when I was writing about him for the great minds of investing about how he was influenced by the, the, the idea in Zen Buddhism of Mujo, which is this Japanese word that basically, as I understand it, is, is to do with impermanence. It's the fact that everything changes, that nothing stays the same. So I would interview him for a couple of hours for the great minds of investing. And I'd start thinking, this is a really profoundly important issue. Like, if the world is changing constantly and we can't predict the future, the future is unknowable, how the hell do we make any decisions? What do we, what do, how do we make any decisions yeah. about the future when it comes to investing? How do we decide what city to live in, who to marry, what job to have, whether to have kids, how many kids to have? And so it's this fundamental problem. And so I started to think, what if I could really explore that in depth? What if I could go back and spend many hours speaking to Howard? What if I could? What if I could start talking to all of these other great, great investors about this theme of how to deal with change? And I would suddenly remember, oh, I remember Bill Miller, one of the greatest investors of all time who'd beaten the market 15 years running famously at Lake Mason, telling me when I wrote an, an eight-page profile of him for Fortune 20 years ago, I remember him saying to me, the biggest problem in markets is that everything changes all the time. Nothing stays the same. I'm thinking, well, Bill's a really interesting guy. He's, he, he was in military intelligence and his biggest yeah. influences as an investor of Wittgenstein and William James. You know, he's a philosopher. Uh, I mean, he recently gave $75 million to a, the philosophy department at Johns Hopkins. So I start thinking, that'd be really cool to explore the idea of what you do when everything changes. And then I would start to think, well, Bill is one of the smartest people alive and he got totally smashed during the financial crisis where he got everything wrong and he had yeah. to deal with all of this pain and suffering with this public humiliation. And I've had the shit kicked out of me too over the years. I mean, I got laid off by time. I went to work at a magazine I really hated. It was the middle of the financial crisis and my, and my industry journalism was just collapsing. It was in yeah. free fall. I had two young kids and a wife and I'm 
so you know i'm living in london and and i'm starting to think what the hell am i going to do and so i'm looking at someone like bill and i'm thinking how do you deal with adversity how do you deal with setbacks how do you deal with things going wrong um and so i would look at i would look at these themes like that and i think well that'd be really cool if i could go talk to bill again who i've interviewed for maybe 90 hours over the last 22 years and so i would go spend two days interviewing bill at his home and uh, at his office and because there's so much trust built up over so many years i was able to get people to talk to me incredibly candidly i'm not saying this in a self-congratulatory way i'm literally you know i'd be i'd be walking in bill's garden with him and he's showing me where he's going to be buried in his garden and and uh, you know and he's telling me what he's going to have written on his tombstone uh, i mean that's a very intimate thing you know you're um and so so initially i started writing the book because i thought well I'll, I'll be able to i'll be able to distill all of this stuff that i've learned over the last 25 years from interviewing people like bill miller and howard marks and stuff like that and then i was like i'll go i'll go back and spend time with the most interesting most impressive most thoughtful, most decent, wisest investors I've come across, not the rapacious ones who don't yeah. give a damn about anything except, you know, getting a bigger plane. Yeah, I'm not interested in those guys. But I'm interested in the ones who have something to teach. And so, so I interviewed more than 40 people for the book. Some of them, I mean, I literally I went to India for five days with Monish yeah. Pabai. I mean, I, I was going very in depth. I mean, he's, a, he's I, an incredible character in your book, actually. Unbelievable I mean, he's an incredible character guy. anyway, but I mean. Unbelievable guy. So someone like Monish, for example, I'd been on a flight with Monish and Guy Spear coming back. Guy had rented a NetJets plane coming back from the Berkshire Hathaway annual, annual general meeting. And I'm sitting in this NetJets plane with, with Guy and Monish, who'd just been to the, the brunch with Buffett and Munger in Omaha after the annual general meeting. And they're sort of both giddily high, having just had this amazing audience with Buffett and Munger and Bill Gates and people like that. And we're talking the whole way on this flight about this concept of the inner scorecard, for example, which mm -hmm. is this thing where Buffett said at, at this charity lunch where they had paid $650,100 to have a charity lunch with Buffett a few years before. And, and during the lunch, Buffett said to Monish and Guy, um, look, you really need to live by an inner scorecard. And he said, it's pretty easy to tell whether you have an inner scorecard or not. He said, he said, you have to ask yourself, would I prefer to be known as the best lover in the world publicly, but actually in reality be the worst? Or would I prefer to be known publicly as the worst lover in the world, but actually privately be the best lover in the world? And so we spent this whole flight talking about this concept of the inner scorecard. So Monish would be saying, well, people like Nick Sleep, this amazing investor in London, he's the embodiment of the inner scorecard, just doesn't give a damn what anyone thinks. Yeah. Or, or Elon Musk or Steve Jobs or Margaret Thatcher or um, uh, who else? I can't remember who else was on his list. And, um, and then I would think, well, that would be a really interesting thing to write about. And then I remember, I think it was when I was getting on the on the on that plane, Monish said to me, um, I think your next book should be about cloning. And cloning is this idea that Monish has that you 
you really, you don't need to reinvent the wheel. You want to reverse engineer what people who are wiser and smarter than you have already figured out, which is what he did in, in investing. So I would just think, well, okay. So I spent many hours interviewing Monish. I like the guy tremendously personally. He's, he's one of guys closest friends, if not his closest friend. So, and, and guy is one of my closest yeah. friends, if not my closest friend. And so, so I'd spent a lot of time with him over the years and I'm thinking, this is such a powerful idea, this idea of cloning. And what if you don't have to be original? What if actually you can get a hell of a long way in life just by reverse engineering what other people figure out? So then I would say, well, that's a chapter. That's something I'm gonna explore and I'm gonna go big on it. And in, and in some ways, if you think about a lot of books written in this sort of Malcolm Gladwell tradition, like the yeah. Tipping Point or um, uh, Blink, any of these books, Gladwell's great they tend to take one idea. So cloning would be the whole idea. And I'm kind of nuts. So I'm like, I'm going to have about 10 ideas like that. Um, so one chapter is on everything changes. How do you deal with the fact that everything is impermanent and yet, and, and the future is unknowable and yet you have to make decisions about the future. Another is about cloning that theme. And so, so the whole book is structured, I guess, around these individual themes. Each chapter in a way is driven by a theme. It was really something that was on my mind that I was trying to figure out, um, how, how do I live? How do I deal with adversity? How do I decide what actually constitutes a rich and abundant life? How do I, how do I clone stuff from other people who figured things out that I haven't figured out yet? And so, so, you know, Nassim Taleb often talks about this concept of skin in the game where he yeah. says, you know, you, you, you want to invest with people, for example, who really have skin in the game. You don't, you don't want, um, uh, you know, you know, it's kind of, it's, um, it's like you, you want, you want to be aligned with the investor, with the money manager. You, if they screw up, you want to know they're going to go bankrupt. <laughs> you know, yeah. it needs to be skin in the game. And Taleb talks about how, you know, in architecture, in in ancient days you would have the architect would have to stand under the arch that he'd built. So if it fell, you know, he would die. And for me, there was a lot of skin in the game in this book. I, it, it wasn't some big theoretical thing where I'm like, I'm going to write this book and it's going to be great for my brand and everyone's going to think I'm smart. It's like, no, I'm wrestling with these questions of how to, how to live a decent, fulfilling, happy, truly abundant life. And, and I like, think that really... I think that really comes across. Oh, like you can really, you can really feel the work that's been put in, and I think that's what for me made it such an enjoyable read, is because it does feel very heartfelt when you when you've been writing. Thanks. Yeah, and I'm and I'm trying to be honest about my my own pain and suffering and stupidity along the way. I'm not saying, look, I'm some sage who's figured it out. I'm I'm there as a kind of proxy for the reader, saying, look, I've had access to people like Charlie Munger, who's now just turned 99 mm. and is genius and has read absolutely everything. And I've had access to, you know, going around India with Monish. And I can tell you, this is what you need to know that he's figured out. Can, can you just sort of comment on, I mean, Monish is obviously very big on his sort of educational charity. And one part of the book that I really enjoyed, would you be able to sort of just uh, elaborate a little bit more on his, on what he's doing for, for female education, et cetera? Yeah, Monish is absolutely extraordinary. So, so, so if you think about this idea of cloning, basically what you're doing is you're, you're, you're looking at what other people have figured out, then you're replicating it. 
with kind of relentless attention to detail and um and kind of creating this replica and so so he did this with investing right he he reverse engineers buffett and munger figures out how to make a fortune and then has to decide well, so what am i going to do with the fortune and so characteristically he clones buffett again he says well buffett buffett said you don't want to leave your kids everything because uh, he said you know you you want to give them enough so they can do anything but not so much that they'll do nothing so he says i'm going to clone the giving so he starts to look around at different places to give his money away and he says well i don't really like any of these charities and you can't really figure out how well your money is being spent and what the return is and he's very data driven he was an engineer originally and so he he's reading business week one day and he stumbles upon this small article about a charity in india called the super 30 that is run by this extraordinary math teacher who who takes 30 very bright poor young indian kids teenagers and teaches them gives them coaching for a couple of years so that they could take the entrance exam to the indian institutes of technology which is their equivalent of mit yeah. and so this in one fell swoop launches these kids out of poverty and their families out of poverty because then they can get hired by you know big companies that okay. would be totally out of the reach out of their reach so monish contacts this teacher and says, can I bankroll you? And I says, no, I'm, this is my full bandwidth, can't do any more. And so Monish says, um, I'm going to go and meet this guy in Bihar province, which was renowned as the, the kidnapping capital of the world. And he goes with, with these two bodyguards and the guy he's meeting, the, te the teacher he's meeting, hires four bodyguards himself without Monish knowing. So, so they've got yeah. six bodyguards. As he as he's in Bihar province, which is a place where literally it was so poor that people would steal the railway track and melt it down. You know, I mean, it's just this is this is not the place you want to be as a rich hedge fund manager. And um, he goes and meets this guy and he says, um, can I clone what you're doing? The guy says, yeah, sure. OK. And so Monish proceeds to clone this on an industrial scale. So instead of 30 kids a year, Monish Monish over the last maybe 12, 13 years, has basically helped haul thousands and thousands of kids out of poverty. And, and what he's basically doing is he's he's giving them typically a year or two years of free coaching to get into the Indian Institutes of Technology to take this, this blind entrance exam with something like a million people a year take this entrance exam. And there's typically about a 2% or 1% acceptance rate. He's had something like a 62% acceptance yeah. rate for these yeah. kids. So they get this incredible coaching Many of these kids are from families where they're they're from untouchable families. They're from I mean, there was one kid I, I wrote about who had come top of her class at high school out of something like 83 kids. And she she was from a caste known as um something like other backward classes, something like that. And and I'm there she's in the classroom with Monish. And Monish asks this question that's incredibly difficult, this mathematical question that's very difficult. And he says, does anyone know? And this 15-year-old girl, she's called Elisa, figures this out and says sort of very unconfidently, uh, yes, I, I, I think I have the answer. And you, know, you can see Monish watching her and thinking, there's no way this is going to work out. And she comes up with this incredibly elegant solution that he says basically means she could come in the top 200 out of a million applicants. Yeah. And so you just see this kid from 
this very, very poor background being yanked out of poverty. And so one of the things I was doing was I was trying to say, this isn't just a game where the ability to think well is going to enable you to buy a plane and a yacht and stuff like that. The ability to think well, to think about something like cloning has actually enabled Monish to yank thousands of kids out of poverty. Yeah. yeah. And so I started the book with that. I and and that was a risk because I mean, I mean, when I when I read that first part about this girl Elisa being yanked out of poverty, it brings me to tears. I mean, there's something very moving about seeing seeing this girl with no opportunity through sheer intellect and through through Monish's generosity and kindness and intelligence and his his ability to crack problems, to solve problems. This girl being lifted out of poverty, that's a stunning thing. And there's a there's another guy, a guy called Ashok Talapatra, who I've met a few times, who came 63rd out of a million out of after going through um, the, the coaching from this Dakshina Foundation yeah. that, that Monish founds. I, I, I met Ashok a few times and Ashok got this incredible job at, at Google as an engineer at Google and moved to London, um, now lives in California and is kind of flying up the ranks at Google. This is a kid who, when Monish and his daughter, Monsoon Pavrai, went to visit his family in India, they had a, a pink plastic shower curtain as their front door, and they had an asbestos ceiling. And when it rained, it just would flood into the house. And I, I said to Ashok once, I met him with my wife and kids for dinner once, uh, and I said, uh, what happened when it was the monsoon? And he just looked at me and he said, it was hard. Yeah. And so you think of you think of Monish yanking that guy Ashok, who's wonderful and really charming out of poverty. And and now and then Ashok turns around and immediately buys an apartment within six months for his parents who were living in this slum in India, buys an apartment with an impermeable roof and air conditioning and stuff. And they didn't want to move far away from the slum because mm -hmm. they'd be away from their friends. So it was sort of right next to the slum, but it was a nice apartment. Uh, and an Ashok or house, I think it was an Ashok would come to Omaha with Monish to the Berkshire Hathaway annual meeting. And I would sit next to him and Guy Spear. And there's something kind of so beautiful about that, about seeing, seeing Monish's ability to crack problems and clone and reverse engineer the super 30 and reverse engineer Buffett and Munger to figure out the rules of investing, able to use that to lift up thousands of people. And so part of what I was doing there's a sort of subtle proselytizing aspect of the book where I'm focusing on these people who provide a different kind of role model. So you look yeah. at you look at Monish and yeah, he's brilliant at making money. And you can learn a great deal from him about to invest about how to invest and get rich. And and I'm and I'm explaining in that chapter what you can figure out from how he's reverse reverse engineered Buffett and Munger. But I'm also trying to convey these deeper secrets that you can learn from, from Monish. So one of the things is the sense of service, the sense of wanting to lift up other people, that that's, that's a really fundamental part of a rich life. Uh, that just to make money for his own sake is a kind of stunted thing. Another thing is this idea of living by an inner scorecard. And so Monish has set up his life in a way that's so true to who he is. So he would say, for example, 
you know, I went to visit him in Irvine, California, where he had his office. And he'd be, he'd be wearing shorts and a short sleeve shirt. And he looked like he was just going out for a stroll on the beach. And he would sleep in in the morning and then he'd come into the office and his assistant would print out all of his emails, which mm -hmm. is what Munger's assistant does. And he would yeah. scroll a couple of words on top and she would then fax them or email them to people. So he was sort of cloning Munger's way of dealing with this stuff. He would have a totally empty calendar. He wouldn't meet anybody, which he's cloning from Buffett. Uh, so, so he doesn't want to have his day full of meetings. And he would say, I don't, I don't want to be meeting my shareholders and talking to my shareholders the whole time, defending what I've done and pitching, pitching the fund to new investors. I'm just not interested in the mumbo jumbo of marketing. So I'm not going to do it. And so he would say, I'm perfectly happy to sacrifice millions and millions of dollars yeah. a year fees to live in the way that I like, which is to sit quietly in a room, read, think, study stocks, and then make very concentrated bets on a handful of stocks. And so there's a real message there, right? Like what I'm trying to say is, okay, you may not be as rich as Monish. I may never be as rich as Monish, but shouldn't I be thinking about how to construct my life in a way that's true to me? And so that would- Very true. That would get me thinking really hard about, well, for example, I'm not gonna work with assholes ever because I really don't like that. And for me, that's a non-starter. And there's a lot of them around as well. Yeah, or just people who they're under a lot of stress and it brings out the worst in them and they don't know how to behave and, and they think that's an appropriate way to behave. And they're probably great people in a different environment, different context, they're nice to their dog. Um, yeah. But I don't wanna work with them. And so I only work with people who are really nice. And that's a really wonderful thing. And so that, so, so I'm never going to be, you know, a billionaire, but I know that I'm perfectly happy to walk away from money, not to work for someone who's an asshole. And, and so that in a way is one version of me cloning Monish and Monish cloning Warren and saying, yeah, I'm going to set my life up to live in a way that's true to myself. Another, Another thing that's really striking is when you look at people like like Monish or Bill Miller, they're very they're very independent spirited about just the structure of their time. And so so Monish is perfectly happy to take a guilt-free nap in the afternoon. Doesn't bother yeah. him. Totally happy to stay up and read all day, read later late at night. Bill Miller, he's like, I I'm not gonna pump the gas in my car. And I'm not going to fly on a regular commercial plane. I'm just not going to do it. And I'm not going to decorate my home. Uh, I'm going to get other people to do that. And so I can just sit around and focus on reading, thinking. And there's something kind of, you, you could easily say, well, well, that's really antisocial. And, you know, these, these, these rich. I suppose, I suppose it helps if you've got a bank balance to start with. It definitely helps, but it also we can we can apply the same sort of thinking and say what am i not going to do what am i going to subtract from my life and so 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 I, I wrote a chapter about habits for example about high performance habits and one of the things i talk about that again is a theme that that i've really applied in my own life is this idea of the art of subtraction where you're saying most people are adding complexity to their lives how can i subtract complexity what can i remove what shouldn't i be doing and so 
this is really helpful to me. I, I, I feel this at the moment. My life is too complex. I have too many, too many projects, too many things. And it's a, it's a great blessing. I'm not complaining about it, but I'm, but I'm, I'm thinking, what, what can I remove? What should I focus on? Am I focusing on the right thing? And I, I was talking, I was talking to my, my mom on the phone on the way over my, my mother's in London. And so I was just driving to my office and, and we were chatting and I was telling her about all the stuff I got to do. And she's like, do you, do you have time to do things like this interview like this podcast? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, no, I, let, well, I'm let's... very grateful you do. <laughs> yeah. And I said, I was like, no, it's a good, it's, it's a good thing to, to talk about the book, to talk about these ideas, share these ideas. And you know, that's, that's part of my job and part, part of what I think about this stuff, but it, it was a very legitimate question and it's helpful for me to have to think about it. Part of, part of my purpose in, in being here is that for me, actually, um, I, I don't want to sound sort of self-righteous or pompous. Like there's an element of proselytizing where I enjoy teaching and sharing ideas. Yeah, and absolutely. I'm not, I'm not trying to drive book sales. I mean, I'm happy if our listeners buy books. That's great. Good. Thank you. Um, I, please buy many and you'll become even richer, wiser and happier. But um, you're the one that's going to come richer, right? By people buying more books. Yeah, yeah. Well, they will too, I hope. But um, I, I mean, Monish, Monish, when Monish read the book, he changed the way he invested because of the chapter about Nick Slee. So said, I think that's one of my favorite chapters in your book, just the whole removing yourself and you know, running the fund above a laundrette in Fulham in London, uh, yeah. not having the noise of the city, you know, the financial district. I love the way that you explained why he bought Costco, because it's such a simple mm. thesis to owning that business. It's just, I guess it is that getting down to the bare bones of your ideas or your, your holdings or your thoughts to really distill and, uh, and do well on the back of it. Yeah, so for listeners who don't know much about Nick and Zach, they, they set up this partnership, the Nomad Fund. And um, they were <laughs> these very eccentric, very lovely guys who, who were sort of weird misfits in the world of investing. And so they, they, they didn't go to business school. You know, Nick wanted, Nick wanted to be a landscape architect, but got laid off from the landscape architect where he was, uh, where he was, you know, designing dormer windows for car parks and stuff. And, um, and Zach wanted to be a meteorologist, but his parents said it was stupid and he shouldn't be a meteorologist. And so they both sort of fell into the financial world. And so they were these, these kind of odd ducks and they weren't very materialistic. And, and Nick had become obsessed in his late teens with Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance by- uh, An amazing Persick. book, an amazing It's book. an extraordinary book. And it's all about what Persig calls the, the metaphysics of quality. And so one of the things that Persig says is there's an ugly way and a beautiful way to do everything, right? Whether you're mending a dress or, or fixing a chair or, or um, you know, building something or, or running a fund, for example. And so Nick takes this very seriously and he says, well, what would a really high quality fund do? What would that look like? What if everything in our lives was designed around this concept of quality? And so for example, the, the, one of the things that you would do is you would say, we're not gonna raise an enormous amount of assets because we know that performance is likely to suffer as we get bigger and bigger. And so 
So they first closed the fund to new investors when it reached about 100 million in assets. So all they were focusing on was good returns. So, so they, they just were super rational. So they would say, what's a high quality way to approach our information diet? Well, most people are focused on short-term ephemeral nonsense, right? Like they're, they're like I remember Zach saying to me, this is a, when I was fact-checking the book early during the COVID period, Zach said, look, there's an article in the Financial Times, I think it was today, where people are debating what kind of economic recovery we're, we're going to have. Is it going to look like a, like a V? Is it going to look like a Nike swoosh? And he's like, it's just nonsense. And he, so he said, we ignored that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. We looked for information with a long shelf life. So, so this high quality approach to information means that they were just sitting around reading annual reports, traveling to meet companies, studying what the best business models were, and really thinking and reading books. And so, so they gradually, they decide, okay, well, there's one business model that's better than all the rest. And it's what, what, what they would call scale economies shared. So you think of a company like Costco, and instead of it, its size becoming a burden and an anchor, its size actually becomes an advantage because what they're doing is, I think they never have a markup of more than about 14% on any product. And so because they treat their clients, their customers really well, and I'm a devoted shopper at Costco, I think they're great. Um, because they treat their customers really well, they have very loyal customers. And so they keep growing. And then instead of pocketing those extra profits, what they do is they say, well, we'll give our, our customers an even better deal. Mm. And so, so, they, so there's this kind of benevolent cycle where they keep, they keep using their growing scale to share the, uh, the bounty with their customers, to give their customers an even better deal. And so, so this creates this amazing flywheel. And so Nick and Zach started to recognize this in all these different places. So they were very quick to see this with Amazon. And so partly because of Bill Miller, who, yeah. who invested in Nomad, Bill explained to them why Amazon was extraordinary. And when, when Nick and Zach started to analyze Amazon, they, they saw Amazon had, had come up with its prime membership where you'd be, you know, you'd pay whatever it was, yeah. $70 in those days now, maybe $90 a year or whatever. And you'd get free, free delivery. You'd get free storage of your photos. You'd get free TV shows you know, all of these things that they just keep making the deal better and better. And Nick looks at this and he says, oh my God, this is Costco on steroids. Like it's the same as your membership card at Costco where you pay about $80 a year, $100 a year, and you get all these incredible deals. And so he could see that there were these idiosyncratic leaders like, like in those days, Jim Sinegal at Costco or Bezos at, um, uh, at Amazon or Buffett at Berkshire Hathaway who didn't care about Wall Street. They weren't playing the same game as everyone else, which was yeah. a, a quarterly game where you're like, will I beat my earnings by one penny? And they were like, well, that's bullshit. Who cares? And so they started to focus on this very high quality long-term game. So they would say, think of, a, think of a company like Costco and Amazon and ask yourself, what's the long-term desirable destination for this business? And so this is, this is something that Nick would call destination analysis. So you would say, okay, so here's what they, what they want to become. Here's what they could become. What are the inputs to get them there? And how would they get there? And, and are they doing those inputs? Are they treating their customers and their clients well? 
are they driving down costs? Are they sharing costs? Are they treating people honorably? Are they getting parcels to people super quickly? Is their, is their choice enormous? And so that's a completely different question. It's a completely different way of thinking. So, so I would look at that and I would say, that's really interesting. So, so these companies like Costco and Amazon and Berkshire are deferring gratification. Yeah. Nick and Zach are deferring gratification. They don't care about maximizing their profits. They don't care about short-term earnings analysis. They don't care about day-to-day -day news about whether the economy is going to resemble a Nike swoosh in its recovery. They're just asking these long-term questions. And so it's sort of think, oh, so it's a huge competitive advantage in life to defer gratification and to focus on the long-term. And then I would start to think, oh, so what if I applied destination analysis to my own life? So mm -hmm. what if I said, on the day that I keel over, um, if, if there's a funeral and my wife and kids are at my funeral, will they talk of me fondly? And what are the inputs to get me there? Or will they say, you know, a pox on him. He was, he was such a schmuck. And, and then you start to think, okay, so, uh, you know, Munger, Munger quotes this guy who said, everything is, is one damn connectedness after another. Everything is related to yeah. one damn relatedness to another, uh, after another. Sorry, I'm gobbling that. Everything is one damn relatedness after another. So everything is connected. So I would start to think of this and I would hear this, this, this doctor in New York, who's an expert on longevity, Peter Atia, would talk about the centenarian Olympics. And he would say, well, when I'm 100, I want to be able to pick up my great-great-grandchildren, lift them up. I want to be able to walk up the stairs. I want to be able to carry the groceries. What do I need to do to yeah. reach that desirable destination? What, a, what sort of exercise? Do I, do I just do aerobic stuff or do I need to do strength training? Do I need flexibility? What sort of diet do I need? And so this becomes an incredibly powerful master principle, this idea of focusing on long-term destinations, deferring gratification, and in a world that becomes more and more short-term, more and more focused on instant gratification, on yeah. dopamine hits yeah. from your phone, from, from social media, from um, you know, what, whatever it is, um, that becomes a huge competitive advantage if you can defer gratification. So for me, these things just radiate out, right? It starts with how do you get rich? And then you start to think, oh, this relates to how I, how I invest, my information diet, what, what I read, what I don't read. It relates to the way I treat my partners. It relates to the way I treat my kids. It relates to my health. And so this is, I just happen to have a pretty nutty kind of brain where I see these weird connected things, which is, which is one of the reasons why it's hard for me to get stuff done quickly. Cause I'm always, I'm, you know, I'm like, I'm like Homer Simpson sort of spotting a donut by the, you know, by the side of the road and being like, and forgetting that I'm trying to save my kids. Nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that. Um, and then obviously you've met a lot of people researching the book. What's the, what's the best piece of advice do you think? What's the one, what's the, What's the helicopter, sorry, the sort of helicopter view or the, what's the one line that you would like to think that resonated most with you? Who's, who told you your best piece of advice in the sort of 25 years of, of interviews? There's a, there's a reason why I end the book with Arnold Vandenberg, because he embodies so much of the wisdom that I think you want to incorporate in your own life. And, and one of the things that 
one of, Arnold is such an extraordinary character, right? This is for people who don't know. This is he, he was the, when I when I decided I was going to write this book. The first two things I did, I, I arranged to go to India with Monish, and I arranged to go spend two and a half days with Arnold Vandenberg at his office in Austin, Texas. And um, what's funny is now he and Monish live in Austin and, and <laughs> they see each other. And I think they they work in the same building now. Um, so my reporting will be easier next time around. I'll be able to go visit them both at the same time. And um, Arnold is an extraordinary guy now in his early 80s, who's a Holocaust survivor. And so his parents were in Auschwitz. He grew up in hiding and behind a fake wall. And then his parents were so worried that the Nazis would come in and discover um, Arnold and his brother, that um, who was called Sigmund, um, that they decided they had to smuggle them out of, of Amsterdam. They lived on the same street as Anne Frank. And so he ends up in an orphanage in the countryside. Um, and he was malnourished. He was starved by, by his parents when they got out of Auschwitz. Um, he was six years old and they came to pick him up at the orphanage and he couldn't even recognize them and he couldn't walk. He was shuffling along on his hands and knees. And um, everyone thought that he had brain damage from being starved as a kid. And he, he barely made it through high school. I mean, he showed me his high school records and it was, you know, he's like, look, it's a joke. He's like, I, you know, I, I only got through because I had, uh, you know, I'd be in an acapella class and the, the teacher would ask me just to mouth the words because I'm tone deaf. And he's like, I, I wasn't good at anything. And, and so you look at Arnold and here's a guy who was dealt the worst possible hand in every way. Like his, you know, you want to idealize his parents who survived Auschwitz and went through terrible things, but life is complicated. And his father used to beat him up when he was a kid. So, you know, he went through, and his father was an incredibly honorable person as well. I mean, mm -hmm. People are complex, right? Um, and so Arnold comes out of World War II full of rage towards his parents, towards the Nazis, to his his first wife, who was his high school sweetheart, left him for another man, so he's full of rage there. And he he did this absolutely extraordinary thing, which is he transformed himself internally into this incredibly loving, decent, kind, compassionate, admirable human being and so so really that that story of how you gain control of your inner landscape and turn yourself into an admirable human being is probably ultimately the most important story yeah in the book and and so there's a there's a point i mean i'll see if i can find this i have the book right next to me if you don't mind we'll see if it, if it so so the so in the epilogue which is what i where I write about Arnold. Yeah, look at this. So it opened exactly at this. So I have a, a square around, a rectangle around this passage. Um, and so I'm reminding myself of this. So this is something that Arnold said to me. He's, so he'd just been talking about a former client with $10 million who he said was so eager for the money that he would call me collect to save a few cents. And then there's this quote from Arnold and he says, the most important thing people need is love. And the less love they have, the more they need these material things. They look for money, for some accomplishment or something external to validate them. But all they need to do is be loved and to give love. You know, my wife never knows how much money we have. 
She never cares and she never thinks about it other than how she could use it to spend it on somebody. And so I think about that and I yeah. think that's actually pure wisdom coming from Arnold. And like, like most great truths, it's incredibly simple. And it's really easy to let your, your eyes glaze over and you're like, really? So the greatest truth is I should be more loving? And it's like, yeah, probably try to be a little more loving because if you think that chasing after money and becoming vastly rich is going to make you incredibly happy, you know, you, you're going to waste your life. Yeah. And so I look at Arnold and I think he's truly rich, you know, because he has great relationships, has an incredibly loving wife who he's been married to for 50 years. He loves his kids. His kids love him. He, he's an honorable person and very generous. And I see the way he, the, the delight that he gets in helping other people. Like I, I literally, I, I went to his office and I lay on the floor of his office before I got my flight back home to New York. And he turns on the four seasons by Vivaldi and he hypnotizes me mm -hmm. and he gives me these he talked to me before about how I wanted to change my thoughts and the things that I say to myself. So I can be pretty brutal to myself. My internal monologue is not, is not gentle typically. And so he comes up with these affirmations for me while I'm, and, and then, and then hypnotizes me and sort of implants this stuff in my head. And then I, and so all he's doing this old buffer, you know, he doesn't have any real need to help me or do anything. He's just taking absolute delight in seeing if he could change the way that I speak to myself so that I'll be happier. And there was a moment, there was a moment where he was showing me his, his old files that he had from, he, he had, he had, he had adopted a son from his wife's first marriage. Um, it was lovely wife, Eileen. And he adopts this son. It was a little boy who was sort of, um, fairly fragile kid because, you know, wasn't with his biological father, you know, and he, uh, an Arnold who had been in an orphanage takes this and who had been very weak as a kid, you know, malnourished and had transformed himself into a champion athlete decides I'm going to transform this kid into a champion athlete. And so he would hypnotize his son. He would coach <laughs> him the whole time. He just loved this boy. And he shows me his old clippings from where his boy, this adopted son, who's now president of, of Arnold's investment firm, um, he shows me all these clippings of him winning shot put championships against people who were sort of eight inches taller than him. And, and he starts kind of choking up as he's, as he's telling me this. And I look at this and I just, I just think there's something really beautiful about that. I look at this guy who's taken control of his life taken control of his inner landscape, taken the worst possible hand and turned it into a winning hand. And, and so that, that to me, that, that had a very profound effect on me because it makes you think, okay, so, so I've been dealt a pretty good hand in life. Thank God. You know, I mean, I have loving parents and I had an amazing education and, you know, I was very lucky, thank God to find, uh, you know, to get married at the age of yeah. 25 to a really lovely person, Lauren, who's taken care of me for 30 years now. And, um, but at the same time, I have periods where I get pretty melancholy. I have lots of anxiety. Um, I worry about the future. 
I worry about my kids, you know. And then I sort of think, yeah, but look at Arnold and look at what he did to take control of his inner landscape. And so, so for me, there's something incredibly inspiring and empowering about Arnold's story. And, and part of what it tells you, I think, is that you, if, if you want to have a truly abundant, truly successful life, you've got to focus on your inner landscape. It's not enough to get this external stuff right, like making money, having a beautiful home, stuff like that. That, that, that stuff, I'm not diminishing. It's important. You want financial security. And Arnold talks about that, like the importance of financial security and independence. But you also, you have to, you have to think about how am I going to get equanimity? How am I going to have self-respect? How am I going to have peace of mind? But you have to be happy with yourself. Yeah. 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 And I think, I think there's one of the things that I see with someone like Arnold is great self-respect from knowing, knowing how much he's worked on himself from behaving honorably. And when I see myself behaving poorly, you know, the, one of the biggest, I had a teacher once who said, you know, the, the um the the punishment for anger is anger you know the punishment for jealousy is jealousy you know yeah. you're you're creating your own prison and so just to know that that in many ways happiness really is an inside job that i've got to think about that is very it's very important so i so i start to think about um when I'm trying to construct a successful, truly abundant life, what are the components of that? So, okay, I want to be independent. I don't want to work for assholes. Um, so I need to invest sensibly. I need to live within my means. Um, I need to save because I, I want to build an anti-fragile portfolio in life. I also actually need to exercise because it reduces a hell of a lot of anxiety. It makes me calmer. It makes me happier. So much as I hate exercise, you know, I, I use a Peloton pretty religiously, yeah. not as religiously as I should. Then I, then I start to think, well, okay, so I need to, I need to make some, some sort of contribution, right? I can see from someone like Arnold that one of the reasons he's happy is that he's constantly helping other people. One of the reasons why Monish is happy is he's constantly helping people. So you've got to build that into your life. And then you've got to say, well, so there has to be internal equanimity. So what am I going to do for that? So, okay, there's exercise, but there's also, there's also meditation, which is really, really helpful. Or maybe there's prayer, or maybe there's walking through the woods. Or Then I start to think, okay, so when I'm trying to construct a really happy life, friendship, where, where does friendship fit in? Where do relationships fit in? So like yesterday afternoon, my, my daughter's home from college at the moment. And I had an incredibly unproductive afternoon, but I spent several hours with my daughter. And yeah. I, I don't know, I feel a little bit guilty about it, but I also know that part of building a, a truly abundant life is relationships, it's friendships. And so, so this is, I, I, I guess for our listeners, I would just sort of think about what the destination is that you're trying to reach and what, what, what a good, truly abundant life looks like for you and then and then reverse from there and start thinking like like nick and zach what are the inputs to get there and it's very clarifying because you start to realize yeah okay so so i i don't want to have to worry about money i don't want to have to do a job that i don't like i don't want to have to worry about the next bill but having control over my time 
is actually worth more than an extra hundred thousand dollars or million dollars or whatever. And that just that just is the case. I mean, there's nobody to tell me that I can't be here this morning chatting with yeah. you. Yeah. That's that's a really valuable gift, that freedom and independence. That that I treasure. I don't I don't envy the fact that Guy Spear could rent a NetJets plane. I, you know, I, I'm really glad I got to go on it. It's pretty fun. Um, but Kai as well. I mean, last I'm going to visit him in Switzerland next week, but in a couple of weeks. But you know, when I was spending a lot of time with him while he was working on the education of a value investor, his yeah. memoir, which I helped with, you know, he's totally not flash. Like he 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 had a Porsche, but it was like a ten year old Porsche. You know, it wasn't like, uh, you know, he he had a more expensive bicycle. You know, he had a really good bike because exactly. he loves biking, yeah. you know. And so I just think you have to think about what's actually going, you know, how you define abundance. And it's not it's not the possessions. I mean, Monish is intending to die with nothing, basically, who've given everything away. And um, I think that's that's pretty admirable. I, I want to make sure my kids are OK. I mean, I think Monish wants to make sure his kids are OK. He's he's set them up nicely, but he doesn't want to give them so much. That it'll yeah. ruin no i think that's a that's a very valid and a very um earnest is probably the wrong word but it's a, it's a wonderful insight into life i think um now as my regular listeners will know i like to close with three questions william if i can take okay. one at a time i mean maybe i think maybe some of these might come out of, of our conversation already but your greatest inspiration or mentor my greatest inspiration or mentor i mean the you know, it's, it's, I mean, if I'm honest about it, probably the most powerful figure in my life has been my mother. And, and there's a reason why every chapter that I wrote, uh, the first person I would send it to was my mother, not my editor. And I don't know, there's something I, you know, she's a, a very, um, she, she's in her, in her eighties and she's a very formidable person, very smart and kind of a warrior and having a very powerful woman behind you supporting you in life from day one that's a very powerful thing so so i mean my life would be totally different if i hadn't had such a formidable mother um so so i would say you know and then my wife is inc lauren is incredibly kind and supportive and always has my back and so so really the the most I mean, my whole life is built on on these you know on on the 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 strength and compassion of two remarkable women really and so i think um without without that um i don't think i would have amounted to very much it makes a lot of sense. A book which has inspired you? I, you know, I'm such an obsessive reader. I read absolutely constantly. That the, I mean, the the book that I have on my desk at the moment, which I always have on my desk, whether when I'm writing, when I'm talking, when everything is the Zohar, which is a um, an ancient Kabbalistic text that's written in Aramaic and it's translated by a teacher of mine. Uh, in 23 volumes, and it's really obscure, abstruse, incredibly difficult to understand. Um, 
and I, I try to read that pretty much every day. And it's very, there's something very pleasing about the fact that it's so enigmatic that you read it and you're like, oh, what's that about? And, and basically it's structured. Um, so it takes the, it takes the old Testament, the, the five books of Moses and it says, and it, you know, the, if you, if you go to synagogue on a Shabbat on a Saturday morning, you know, you'll do a reading from the Torah from the old Testament. And so, so the five books are split into, I guess, about 50, 50 readings. So you do one a week. And the Zohar says, if you believe those stories were literally true, better that you were never born. And so it tells you the secrets that are encoded within mm -hmm. those stories. And so if you're sort of slightly subversive as I am, and you like falling down intellectual rabbit holes, it's this infinitely rich rabbit hole to fall down because it'll it'll decode these things and say, this is what it means. And it does it in, in such a beautiful way. So I, I give you an example of something that I love um, where, for example, it says at some point in the Old Testament, it talks about how the Israelites are always at war with the Amalekites. And, and it says, you know, never forget that every generation, the Amalekites are going to come and get you. And they always come from behind and they always attack you. And um, so you read this and you're like, really, I'm going to worry about this tribe of Amalek that's going to come after me three and a half thousand years after this story. And the Zohar and the Kabbalists say, well, every letter has a numerical value, right? So, so the word Amalek starts with the letter Aleph, which gives us the, the word alphabet, right? And the word and, and the letter Aleph, because it's the first letter, has the numerical value one. And so they can, they can calculate the numerical value of these words. And so they say, well, the numerical value of the word Amalek is the same as the numerical value of the word Safek. And Safek means doubt. And so really, this whole story is about the war of consciousness that you're fighting against your own doubt. And so think of that. So you start to think, oh, so every generation I'm going to get attacked from behind by my own doubt, my own fear, my own sense of uncertainty about the future. And so what, what the Zohar is telling me is I actually need to go to war against my own fear and my own uncertainty. And so that's a very beautiful and strange coded lesson that has tremendous ramifications because you start to think, okay, okay, so think of racism, think of xenophobia, all stems from doubt, fear. Like what if there's not enough for me? And so I have to persecute these people because they will be less for me. And so, so the antidote, as this great capitalist called Ravashag would say, is certainty beyond logic. It's the sense that, um, the sense of certainty that there's a system at play, that if you behave a certain way, um, there, uh, uh, you know, there's cause and effect. Um, and so if I behave terribly, um, that's not going to work out yeah. so well. If I behave better, it's more likely to work out. But then you start to say, yeah, but what about the good people? And terrible stuff happens. And your doubt, Safek, starts to eat away at you. And you start to say, oh, maybe it's all just, it's all just dog eat dog and it's nihilism and I should just behave in a crappy way and it doesn't matter. And then it's, that's the sort of, that's the serpent that starts to eat away at the base. Yeah. And so at the foundation. And so just this one example that I'm randomly mentioning, it's sort of, it's sort of infinitely beautiful. And, and so I'm just, I'm trying to, I'm trying to drag myself back into that, um, that world of 
words every day to try to see what what's in there for for me what can i learn that might be helpful and and so i don't know i think i think part of it is just you're you're trying to create an environment for yourself intellectually emotionally socially that that's going to tip the odds in your favor of behaving decently and constructing a, a decent life and so one of the things that charlie munger buffett's partner talks about is is um he he talks about um hanging out with the eminent dead and so he says well look i i need to spend time with ben franklin and einstein and darwin and so he's an obsessive reader of biographies because he's created he's created this this ecosystem for him for himself where he's able to he's able to learn from those people mm -hmm. and so for me in a way by studying something like the Zohar, by studying Tibetan Buddhism, which I study a great deal, um, I, I'm, I'm trying to create a, a philosophical, intellectual, spiritual ecosystem that, that's likely to make me behave less shoddily and, and to think more long-term. And uh, so that's very, that's very helpful. So I, I'm not so much trying to proselytize to people to say, get the Zohar, although I think it's an amazing thing and I, the most important book of my life, I think. But um, I think you want to find a few books that are so powerful to you, they're so rich, that you can come back to them again and again. And, and maybe it's, maybe it's um, you know, Meditations by Marcus Aurelius and the great Stoics, or maybe it's the, the New Testament, or maybe it's Psalms, or um, but something that stood the test of the test of time, the the Tao Ching or something like that, you know, uh, so you can study Taoism. If there's if there's something that stood the test of time, the principles underlying it tend to be very robust. And so mm -hmm. for me, I, I think of the Kabbalists, it's this ancient form of wisdom, it's probably four and a half thousand years old, something like that. Like those those principles are pretty powerful. And, and when I look at someone like Arnold Bannenberg, as I end the book, you know. Arnold embodies one of the greatest teachings of the Kabbalists, which is that the, the Kabbalists explain that what you're trying to do in the course of your life is to transform what they would call the desire to receive for the self alone, which is your ego. It's me, 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 that short term dopamine hit from, you know, poor behavior. Um, you know, giving into your own ego, whether it's you know your your anger, your hatred, your 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 lust, your your thievery, greed, whatever you know, whatever it might be, um, and deferring gratification. And so, what the what the Kabbalists say is, you're trying to transform that desire to receive for the self alone into the desire to receive for the sake of sharing. And so, I look at Arnold, and I'm like, oh, he transformed himself. Here was a guy who was angry, um, depressed um full of rage and he's turned himself into this incredibly kind generous sharing person he's done the transformation and i'm like oh that's that's really helpful for me because then i need i can i can look at that and i can say that's that's at least the trajectory here you know i'm failing the whole time stumbling the whole time doing stupid stuff self-destructive stuff self-defeating stuff um falling for you know those short-term uh hits of dopamine yeah um the whole time but at least i know that the long-term game is to make that transformation towards the desire to receive for the sake of sharing and so arnold yeah he's got all these blessings he's got a nice home 
he's got great family, got good health, all of these things. He's received all of these blessings, but he's sharing. And I see the same with Monish. I see Monish, yeah, he's making hundreds of millions of dollars over the course of his lifetime. He'll probably end up being a billionaire. Um, but he's giving it all away and he's lifting thousands of kids out of poverty. And so it's receiving to share. And so, so understanding the rules of the game, which I think have been laid out in these great ancient spiritual paths, like, like Judaism, um, Christianity, Buddhism, Islam, you know, uh, you look at these things and you're like, oh, okay. Like, like, like the, the holy war, the jihad is actually against your own ego. Mm-hmm. It's not, it's not against, you know, uh, you know, when you look at, you know, the idea of love thy neighbor as thyself, it's like, oh yeah. So, so it's not just saying love thy neighbor so long as he's from the same religion or supports the same football team or is the same color or the same gender or the same, you know, uh, it's the same political party. It's like, no, no, love thy neighbor as yourself. And you're like, oh, that's interesting. And then so, okay, so regardless of who my neighbor is, and then you're like, and wait a second, what if I don't love myself? Do I really want to love my neighbor when I don't love myself? And do I want to love my neighbor in the same way? So maybe I have to work on loving myself more. So I think these ancient truths that run through different faiths are so powerful. And so part of a rich life for me has to include tapping into this, this deep well of very robust ancient wisdom. And then what piece of advice would you give to a young person starting out on their career to follow in your footsteps? I, I, you know, I have a 21-year-old daughter, Madeline, a 24-year-old son, Henry. So I'm constantly talking to them about, uh, about how to live and they're constantly tuning out. And they're like, really? Yeah. Um, I, it's very difficult because you're, you're projecting onto them so much stuff. Uh, that you don't really know, like, how do I know what they should be doing? But I, I look at my daughter say, and like yesterday, yesterday, my daughter played me some music that she'd written earlier in the day. And it was kind of extraordinary. And I said to her, I want to pick you up and shake you to get you to focus on your music and not on all of these other things. And you have so much talent in this area. Focus on it. It's so good. And that's a really challenging thing, right? To, to, to pick a thing that, that you're extraordinary at and then surround that subject and become incredible at it. And, and what's difficult is, yes, you need to do that, but how do you find that thing? And what if it's something else? And, and, and so this is, this is why it's so difficult to provide any advice, I think, is I think, you know, I think I'd really like to encourage her to be a musician and to buy that lottery ticket, even though it's an incredibly hard way to make a, a living. Um, but what if I'm wrong? What if she's supposed to be something else? And so to some extent, you can you can give this advice, but you have to, you've kind of got to make the mistakes yourself. You've got to, mm-hmm. you've, you've got to grope yourself towards what you're going to be. And so it's it's difficult. I I mean, there there are a few things you can certainly, you know, that are generally true. I, this whole idea of excellence that comes from people like Persig. Um, this obsession with excellence in a world that's very focused on just pumping out crap, ephemeral crap. I think the people who try to create something of enduring value and um, try to defer gratification 
and try not to focus on the ephemeral. I think there's some degree of competitive advantage yeah. there. Um, I think trying to pick a handful of habits that compound over time, where the benefits compound over time. If you can, if you can pick a few good habits early on that resonate with you, like eating well, exercising, helping others, um, deferring gratification, things like that. Um, trying to be kinder, building relationships, building goodwill, compounding goodwill by being kind, decent to other people. I think I, I, maybe there's nothing more powerful than that than just just picking a handful of habits early on that have benefits that compound over time. Live within I, your means and save. I think that's great advice. Although you know, do you want to give any advice, I thought it was great advice. Um, <laughs> and then William, how can listeners get in touch with you? Uh, they're welcome to connect with me on LinkedIn or on Twitter. I'm at William Green 72. I have a website that's eternally in need of updating that I never quite update, which is um, williamgreenwrites.com, which I cloned from Michael Lewis because williamgreen.com was taken. And I was like, okay, so if I want to clone, let's see what Michael Lewis does. And he has michaellewiswrites.com. So I'm like, okay, williamgreenwrites.com it is. And then I saw a friend of mine, maliaboydwrites.com. She'd cloned mine. So I was very happy to see that. Um, so they're welcome to visit me at my cloned website. Um, and then and, I, and you have a podcast. podcast. Yeah. yeah. So I hope people will listen to the podcast. The podcast is, it started out, it's, so it's called the richer, wiser, happier podcast. And it goes out on the feed of a podcast called we study billionaires, which is, I think the most popular stock investing podcast in the world. So it's had something like 107 million downloads. And so, so luckily my friends, Dick Broderson and, and Preston Pish partnered with me and allowed me to, to have my podcast go out on, on their feed, which is a wonderful thing. And so I interview people like Ray Dalio and Howard Marks and Joel Greenblatt and Monish Pabrai and Guy Spear. And it's, it's been kind of a wonderful thing because you can have these long in-depth conversations with some of the greatest thinkers of our time. And it's, it's just a, it's just a real treat. And, and, and again, I don't, I don't, I, I, there is a sort of uh, a teaching element of it. It's not, you know, as you know, from doing your own podcast, it's, it's, unless you're Tim Ferriss, it's not like a vastly lucrative enterprise. Exactly. You're doing exactly. it because you enjoy conversations, you enjoy yeah. sharing ideas. And I think there's an incredible wealth of rich insights from, from these investors. I, I would encourage people, for example, go, go listen to something like the, the interview that I did with Joel Greenblatt, who's one of the, greatest hedge fund managers of all time and also a chapter in your book as well yeah exactly and just a remarkable human and you you listened to him talking i was i was reading over the, the um the transcript of that episode with greenblatt yesterday and like he's talking about the influence that buffett had on him what it was like to go meet with buffett and you read that and you see you see one of the great investors of all time talking about what meeting another of the greatest investor of all time was like, and what he learned from him and how it changed the way he wants to behave in his own life, because he saw how gracious and generous Buffett was. And he just thought, well, why can't I be like that? And so there are things like that, that you, you listen to that's very, if it's an extraordinary thing that we live in an era technologically where we have access to that sort of thing, it's incredible. It's incredible. any amount of information. And so part, part of, part of the challenge is to decide what, what to subtract and, you know how to distinguish the signal from the noise and and i i would say there's a there's a high amount of signal in those conversations not not because of 
my magnificence, but because I just got lucky to talk to these incredible people. And so please, please take advantage of it. I think it, I think it's a very rich source of insight. William, thank you so much for your time today. It's been an absolute delight. Uh, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you. And I, I appreciate your enthusiasm for the book. It's, it's lovely that you, uh, you, you really, you took it to heart and, and, and got into the, the innards of the book. So thank you. Uh, I appreciate it. My pleasure. I really enjoyed it. Thanks very much. Uh, it was a delight. Thanks for listening to Different Perspective, a Zeus podcast. If you'd like to feature on the podcast or get in touch, you can contact me on live at zeuscapital.co.uk. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time.